Hello, insiders, and welcome to a pleasant afternoon. Wherever you may be, this is your host, Eb Wilkinson, along with... And we also have sitting in with us Charles Heller, coming to you live from the modern KVOI broadcast complex here in Tucson, Arizona. Bruce is on special assignment, and uh, hopefully he'll be back in a few short weeks. This program of Inside Track is brought to you by Corazon Cabinets. Now, Bruce gr- wrote this great copy for Corazon Cabinets, and I'm not going to use it. <laughs> let, let me tell you, um, I went down, I talked with Joy down there at uh, their new warehouse. It's outstanding. Uh, it's 6,000 square feet of product in there, stacked to the ceiling. I ended up remodeling a, a laundry room. They came out, they measured, they showed me what would look good. I said, sounds good, do it. I gave them a down payment. It turned out beautifully. Now, I know that Bruce also got his house done. Uh, of course, he's got more money, so he upgraded. I'm not saying that Bruce is rich, but when he spins a dreidel, he uses real uh, Cougarans for that. Uh, <laughs> but call Joy, uh, call Allie at Corazon Cabinet, 488-2266. Speak with them. They're going to treat you right and do you well. <clears throat> Today marks the 634th day of the 15-day Flatten the Curve. And in just two weeks prior to that, Speaker Nancy Pelosi was in San Francisco's Chinatown to send a message that there was no reason for tourists or locals that they should stay away from the area because of the coronavirus concerns. This was echoed by New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio less than two weeks prior to that when he visited New York's Chinatown stating that Chinatown was open for business and that fears of coronavirus were not based on fact and science and that the risk of infection to New Yorkers was low. He also stated that there's no need to avoid public spaces. You you saw how that ended. Across the state of New York, over 53,000 people have died of coronavirus. And it may be more. Thank you, Andrew Cuomo. Joining us now is Pima County Supervisor Steve Christie. Steve, welcome to Inside Track. Well, thanks so much for having me, Ab. It's great to be on your show. Hey, even though the CDC came out and stated that the vaccine does not stop people from contracting or even spreading coronavirus, and yet the Pima County Board of Supervisors voted to fire frontline career professionals such as physicians, nurses, and corrections officers, what gives? Well, this has gone beyond the pale. It's not a a health issue anymore. It's not a... a, uh community health problem anymore. It's now a community safety problem. Uh, We have roughly uh, 380 or close to 400 corrections officers in uh, the Pima County jail system who really, uh, you can ask any any individual in the law enforcement community or career law enforcement, they will say unequivocally that uh, being a a corrections officer is, is one of the most difficult and distasteful jobs in law enforcement, uh, perhaps it, it's very rewarding. It must be uh, for people to want to be so career-minded as our our uh, uh, corrections officers are. But all in all, um, it's the 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 atmosphere is is toxic. It's uh, it's a degrading uh, situation to have to be put into as a corrections officer. They're underpaid, overworked. The benefits are are really nil compared to what uh, uh, you have to go through in order to achieve them. And uh, for some reason, Sheriff Nanos was able to get the the sheriff's deputies uh, 
kind of sequestered away from the vulnerable population requirements that the the Pima County Health Department and the county administration set forth as far as people uh, working for the county in, in terms of their being uh, mandated for vaccinations. But uh, corrections officers are in that community of employees that work in vulnerable populations. Now, roughly 180 to 190 of these corrections officers, for whatever reasons, and it is their right, I'm, I'm not concerned about their reasons as I am concerned about their rights, uh, have decided that they don't want to um, subject themselves to any kind of vaccines. Okay. Well, as a, as a uh, matter of what their, the priorities are for the county and for the, the sheriff's department, uh, these folks who are not going to submit to the vaccinations, again, career-minded professionals, frontline front heroes who were regaled just a few short months ago as uh, uh, the, the frontline people that are, are protecting us and serving us in, in, in very difficult times and were given hazardous pay for the jobs that they do, are now being vilified as typhoid marys and community spreaders and... Um, they are in in the middle of a pathway to being terminated. Well, let, let and, me ask let me ask you a question about that. Here they are. They did great for so long. Now they're being called typhoid marys and, and spreaders. But the CDC came out and basically stated that if you get the vaccination, it doesn't keep you from spreading coronavirus. Exactly. And uh, during the last Tuesday's board meeting, I asked. Uh, uh, acting uh, county administrator Jan Lesher, I asked her point blank, I said, are these corrections officers bad people? And she, she kind of chuckled and said, well, no. And I said, are they bad employees? And again, she chuckled and said, no. And I said, we've just determined that uh, COVID-19 vaccinations do not stop COVID-19. Yet these folks who are not bad employees, who are not bad people, and don't wish to have the vaccination that doesn't stop COVID are being threatened with termination. You tell me what sense that makes. And and the alternative to an overcrowded prison system, which we have in Pima County, and under supervised, under supervised, which we have with a very uh, lack, of, a very severe lack of of uh, uh, corrections officers. There, the county administration the health department and the sheriff's department have come up with this plan that in order to work through losing maybe 180 to 190 corrections officers close to uh, over half of the corrections officer population in an overpopulated inmate situation their their uh, answer to all this problem is to release the criminals into the street oh my god supervisor christie this is charles heller co-hosting with ebb i have a question seeing as how the only people who are authorized to release a person before their sentence is the judiciary. Has anyone reached out to the appropriate bench to contact judges to find out about how hearings could be scheduled to do that? Or are they just planning to violate the law? Well, uh, first of all, good afternoon, Charles. Thanks for the, it's a great question, and it uh, definitely uh, is the is the one that's popping up right now. I mean, the sheriff and the county administration and the health department, they really can't, by a stroke of the pen, uh, open up the, the jail mean, doors. You mean he doesn't have a the, pen and a phone? Yeah, he oh doesn't have God. a pen and a phone and can't <laughs> let the, uh, 
the inmates out into the community. Uh, right. I, I can't see that that has any kind of a authority authority innate in that whole jurisdiction. It has to definitely come from the judicial benches or the legislative branches, and that's certainly going to take time. But nonetheless, um, uh, acting county administrator Lesher was very serious in this proposal in a memorandum that she just released uh, about a week and a half ago, stating that since there's a very good possibility, we will be losing corrections officers, which will lead to a a disproportionate situation where we don't have any uh, real um, ability to, to supervise our prison inmates. The answer for that is we're just going to open up the jail doors and let the but, let the inmates out. How are they going to lawfully effectuate it, though, if they don't have legal authority to do it? I don't see how they can, but, uh, you know, that's, that doesn't seem to have stopped a lot of people to doing a lot of these things anyway. Maybe you can direct her to uh, inmatesrunningtheasylum.com for an alternative proposal. <laughs> I think it might open some eyes, yes. Yeah. Hey, um, Steve, we've got a caller uh, Sean, are you there? Hello, Sean. So, uh, how are you today? Um, first, I'd like to thank Chris Christie. He's the only one who has stood up on this issue. Has... Steve. Steve, yeah. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> oh, my it's God. Just me. I'm, the better-looking like Christie. He's thinner. Yes. <laughs> but I he's the only one who stood up too. for this, this issue, and uh, I, for one, certainly appreciate it. Now, you raised a point about how people are designated as being exposed to those populations. It's my understanding, as being an employee of Pima County and talking to someone in HR, the sheriff is an elected official, and the sheriff has the ability to designate who is exposed to those individuals and who is not. And what I'd like the greater public to, to think about is, yes, corrections officers they have a tough job yes they are um, exposed to vulnerable populations but deputies are as well to try and sit back and say deputies aren't exposed is a joke quite frankly in my humble opinion and um, when that designation comes across and those people let's say all those COs leave what's going to happen is they're going to take deputies off patrol and utilize them in the jail, and then they're unvaccinated, some of them, and you have the same result. It, you know, really, in common sense in this whole situation, unfortunately, over the course of time that we've been dealing with COVID, has gone right out the window. Yeah, Sean, it's the collision at the corner of common and sense. Steve? Well, uh, Sean makes a, a great point, because that was part of the other uh, cure to this uh, jail population issue with with the lack of uh, supervision with the with the uh, corrections officers. In addition to just letting uh, criminals out into the street, uh, if there was a, sh- a staffing shortage, which undoubtedly there will be, the the next thought was, well, we'll just put deputies in into the prison system to take over from the corrections officers. Oh, well, and then, all, but a, they're not vaccinated. So now, does that force the deputies to get vaccinated? No, they're deputies. They have, a, they've been granted, they've been granted immunity from oh, the policy. Oh, great! Yeah, perfect. But well, see, all and the animals are problem. equal. Yeah, and I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, all the animals are equal. Just some are more equal than others, right, Steve? Yeah. So, the, so the deputies, who, by the way, uh, represent a very large. Uh, of the un- unvaccinated population in not only Pima County but in the sheriff's department, um, that they're going to uh, have to 
be taken off the street and put into the prison system to supervise the jail population. Well, that's a very irresponsible misuse of uh, resources, taking deputies off the street and putting them in the jails, uh, merely because uh, corrections officers don't want to submit to the, the vaccinations. And so my, my question in this whole argument is that let's, let's take, take it one step at a time. If, there, if, if in the prison system there is an emergency like a, a riot or a ma- major breakout attempt by uh, numerous and dozens of inmates, and it's, a, it's really an emergency situation, is it better to have a corrections officer there to protect us, to keep the inmate population under control and in the jails uh, as a frontline defense uh, of, a, of a corrections officer who may or may not be vaccinated? Or is it better to have no corrections officer there at all? I think you should send him to Supervisor Hines's house. Yeah, I, Steve, <laughs> you, you bring up a very good point. Um, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that if the virus isn't stopped by the uh, vaccination and the virus isn't stopped by the mask, uh, bottom line, this is all about control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's another insidious factor that's working through here up too that needs to be recognized is that it is a a very um, obvious attempt to uh, defund and to de- demasculate the law enforcement community. In, an, in a time today, in a time where Tucson is now one of the top twelve cities uh, for violence or for uh, homicides, yeah. I, and, and we, we're almost to to the point where um, uh, uh, the the as you say the inmates are running the asylum and almost what, what I'm yeah, what I'm <laughs> pointing at, what I'm pointing out here is that. First, it's the corrections officers. Then it's going to be the deputies, and there's going to be a, um, a, a concerted effort to uh, reduce the, the deputy population, to reduce the corrections officers' population, to defund um, uh, the law enforcement community in Pima County. And it is part and parcel of what we're seeing across many blue states and many blue-run communities of getting rid of the police, and Charles. this is part of that plan. Supervisor Christie, have you talked to uh, County Attorney Laura Conover about this? I have not. Oh. It seems to me that consulting with her, seeing as how she's the person that's do- doing the prosecuting and getting people incarcerated into that jail, it seems to me that it would be appropriate, or maybe consulting her because she is the, the, uh, the county attorney, m- might have some fruit, might it not? I, it uh, certainly would. However, I do have uh, kind of a history with the county attorney, the, our current county attorney. She was uh, on the uh, Stone Garden Committee that Sheriff Napier had put together, and she was very vocal in opposing Stone Garden grants. And she ran on a uh, platform of uh, basically decriminalizing uh, a lot of, uh, of jail terms and a lot of uh, punitive uh, issues. Um, so reducing t- the, the severity of them. You're telling me she's not she, taking what, your calls, huh? <laughs> what, well, she is. I, I mean, she, I'm sure she would. I should say. Well, but, Steve, uh, look what hard. look what happened in San Francisco with that. Look what happened yeah. in Los Angeles with that. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? You know, yeah. the the difference is in Pima County. Uh, I will submit to you that there are a substantially number more percentage wise. 
of people legally carrying firearms than there are in uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland and Minneapolis. All these cities and, and Chicago where all this violent crime is taking place and they're just letting them go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very true. And uh, getting back to the county attorney, uh, you know, her whole focus is reimagining law enforcement and she doesn't want to be, as she says, tough on crime. She wants to be, quote, smart on crime. Well, you know, that kind of leads to a lot of uh, conclusions that really uh, make any kind of communication on this subject with her, uh, from my standpoint, uh, probably uh, a dead end or, or fruitless. Uh, I don't think that um, that we would see eye to eye on this particular issue. And um, quite frankly, uh, when when you're in my position of four to one on the Board of Supervisors, uh, on an on an issue of this nature, it's pretty well determined how it, how the outcome is going to end up. Maybe we can look at it. You're a former business person. Maybe we can look at it as a marketing opportunity. And say, you know, the the code that for murder in Arizona is eleven oh one for first degree. Maybe we could say we're number one in the eleven oh one business. <laughs> wow! Put it on a bumper sticker. You know, it might sell. Yeah. You know. Um, Another thing I want to talk about, uh, they just had a federal judge in uh, Southern District of Georgia on Tuesday blocked a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for all employees and uh, federal government contractors uh, with places like Raytheon being in Pima County. Does that supersede Raytheon's ability to force their employees to get vaccinated? Well, I, I I definitely think that this is an opening that uh, Raytheon, if it was responsible as far as feeling uh, any kind of empathy and and uh, uh, towards their employees as far as uh, keeping them and keeping the Raytheon uh, organization intact, they could use this as an opening by saying that uh, we're going to put on hold any kind of mandates for our employees to be vaccinated until this is settled in the courts. So um, uh, this, I think, is a, is a, a great um, uh, a, a decree by the judge, and I think it's something that we ought to, all, all ought to be paying attention to because if you really get right down to it and if you look at it you know, uh, fully in, the, in just the bare-naked facts, um, this is a constitutional issue in my estimation. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional, constitutional expert or anything like that. But just from the basic knowledge of the Constitution, to force somebody to take a vaccination that they don't want to and then threaten them with their job and livelihood if they don't, that to me sounds unconstitutional. If it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It's right there in the socialist clause of the Constitution, isn't it? Yeah, you're you're Mm -hmm. correct, Steve. I mean, so not only did this federal judge in uh, South District of Georgia do this, several states... uh, are uh, uh, going against that, you know, saying, no, we're going to challenge this mandate to include South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Idaho, Kansas, Utah, and West Virginia. They're saying, oh, no, we want this unconstitutional uh, mandate that takes place. And it's a clear violation of the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution Mm -hmm. and probably the first and probably part of the 14th as well. Mm, uh, No doubt. So, uh, and I think we're, go- we're I think we're going to be seeing a movement in the courts. Then this, I've always said, is going to end up in the courts. And uh, I've also said that it seems to me, if I were a Pima County employee and I were being threatened with my 
my livelihood and my job and my career being terminated because I don't, for whatever reason, and the reasons don't matter, but for whatever reason, I don't wish to submit myself to the inoculation of the vaccine uh, uh, that um, you would think that somebody in, in any of the law firms, uh, uh, and I said, I think one one of the most notorious law firms that's uh, Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Exactly, um, yeah. They, they would... Uh, they would jump at the chance to take on this issue and to have some of some sort of a class action suit. And I can't imagine that any uh, 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 injury attorney uh, worth his or her weight and salt wouldn't grab at this opportunity to represent Pima County employees who are being threatened with their jobs. It's a huge Just standing issue. Over, it's a over, huge over standing issue, though, uh, uh, Supervisor Christie, because until you've been fired, you don't have an articulable damage. Well, that's what that's very true, and I understand that as well. Uh, and I, I often, you know, I get some really heart wrenching calls from Pima County employees, particularly uh, corrections officers and their family members. And in numerous occasions, these calls to me have dissolved into tears uh, on both sides of the phone. And it, it's gut wrenching. It keeps me up at night. It twists up my stomach. Um, and I tell them, don't quit. Make them fire you. Mm-hmm. Do not quit. Right. We have a we have a corrections officer that I know that has basically said he is not going to take the jab. Uh, his and I'll I'll use his words. He said he does not bow down to tyrants and he does not negotiate with terrorists. And he's staying till the bitter end. And they're going to have to fire him. And I think he's not alone. I think there's there's uh, at least 189 or 190 that have uh, not submitted to the vaccination right now, and it doesn't appear that they're going to. That preserves their standing. Bob. Exactly. Yes, uh, Supervisor Christie, this is Bob Wells here in studio, and I th- I really liked how you framed the problem statement uh, at the beginning of the discussion. You know, as we are on this COVID response road, with the focus being community health, and we transition here to the actual community safety Uh, John F. Kennedy said it best, uh, whenever you have a management challenge, you have to have a management solution. Is there a particular instrument or a mechanism within governance or government uh, here in Tucson that could create a safety task force? You you bring in all these other elements here to address the COVID issue, but at the same time, you're looking at managing along the lines of effort to support a better health outcome to support your workforce, to really consider public safety, and also enforce the law. What do you think? Well, I think it's a great idea uh, in uh, principle, but in theory, I, I would think we, we're going to be hard-pressed to, to find uh, folks who uh, are willing to submit themselves to that kind of a public forum uh, with all things involved with, with uh, you know, cancel culture and um, all of the the really insidious things that uh, the other side uh, levels as, as an attack on those mm-hmm. who look at it as, at it as a public issue. But um, certainly, I, I, I'm getting in the back of my mind sort of a feeling here with the, the county administration and the health department and the sheriff as it as it is turning out with the uh, county employees. Maybe it's one of those eyeball-to-eyeball situations, and both sides are waiting to see which one is going to blink first. And I'm just wondering, this is such an outrageous um, uh, public safety issue to uh, let our corrections officers uh, be fired and then let 
uh, inmates out into the public because they can't be supervised properly, that that I gotta gotta believe that hopefully there's maybe this is a trial balloon that's going up with Sheriff Nanos, with the with the uh, deputy administrator, with the health department, just to see if, if there's one side that's going to give or take on the other side. Already, I've seen uh, from the attorney representing the uh, union that represents the corrections officers, their willingness to submit themselves to weekly testing. So it does seem that there's some some ability on, on one side to try to reach an accommodation. And I and the deadline is, I think it's December 31st. It's coming up quick. Uh, and, and something along what you just described needs to be done and done quickly to try to, to quell this uh, public safety emergency, as I call it, Absolutely. and yep. try to find try to find some avenue where this can be reached and not violate the rights of the of the corrections officers or uh, face, force them into termination. Uh, it's, again, these these folks are career minded individuals. Imagine imagine going into a uh, profession like corrections. I mean, you have to really be dedicated. Uh, and and that public service minded Absolutely. to want to get into that field, yeah. and now because they don't want to take a vaccination, they're being threatened with their livelihood, with their career, with their profession, with it's, putting yeah. food on their family table. It makes no sense. Steve, I hate to do this. Uh, we're running out of time. I barely scratched the surface with what I wanted to talk with you about. I really do want to have you back on soon. Uh, thanks for joining us. This has been great. And, uh, Mr. Producer, we're up against the bottom of the hour break, so when we return, we're going to be joined by former ambassador, former governor of Virginia, Jim Gilmore. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. 
This portion of today's show brought to you by Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. Uh, you just saw the rains we had the other night. Uh, I got pounded. I know everybody else did. You're going to see those weeds start to come on out, and I'm seeing the pack rats trying to get into my cars. So now is the time to have your home or business protected from those bugs and critters. Call on them for their pre-emergent treatment of your yard to prevent those big, leafy green weeds from uh, popping on up. Call Essential Pros at 886-3029 so they can safely help you. Joining us now is our next guest, Ambassador and former Governor to the great state of Virginia, Jim Gilmore. Jim is an American politician, former attorney. He was the 68th Governor of Virginia from 1998 to 2002 and Chairman of the Republican National Committee in 2001. He has a BA and a JD from the excuse me, University of Virginia. He served in the Army as a counterintelligence agent. During his tenure as governor of Virginia, Jim helped create more than 250,000 new jobs and gave the state its lowest unemployment in 40 years. On June 25, 2019, he was sworn in as ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, by John Sullivan, deputy of the U.S. Secretary of State. He served two years in that post until the Brandon administration was installed. <laughs> and uh, I forgot to also mention Jim uh, ran for president in 2016. And in full disclosure, I was a supporter of his and contributed to his campaign. Uh, Jim, welcome. Good. Thank you, Rev. I'm, I'm happy to be able to talk to the folks in Tucson. You know, Ed, you might uh, not know this, but I was trained at Fort Huachuca. So I was in and out of Tucson a lot during those years. I, I really love the place. I did not know that. That's great. Yep. So, hey, uh, thank you for your service. Um, we've got in studio Charles Heller and former Navy captain, retired, I'm sorry, retired Navy captain. They didn't They didn't break a st- saber. Of course, <laughs> if you were a Marine, you would have had a sword. But uh, retired <laughs> oh, Navy thanks. captain Bob Wells, and Bob has some questions for you. Good afternoon, great, Governor. How are you, sir? Hello, Bob. Just great. Thank you, Bob. It's great hearing you again. I was your, uh, used to live in Virginia for a few years. You were my governor, and I've met you on a couple of occasions there. But for our listening audience, uh, could you tell us, uh, tell our listeners about the importance of the state of Virginia uh, to the United States and also to national security? Well, I, it is a key state. Uh, we've got a pretty large population, about 8 million people, 8.5 million people. Uh, it's a, uh, a very diverse state. Uh, we have the Washington suburbs, which has all the defense contractors and the high-technology people right out there in the Washington suburbs. Uh, Fairfax County has a million residents just by itself. And then, of course, you have the capital region in Richmond, and then the maritime uh, communities in Norfolk and Newport News, where all of the uh, aircraft carriers are stationed. Then we have a lot of rural areas down the Shenandoah Valley and then out into the west during the Appalachian. So it's, it's a large state. Uh, it has uh, good universities, uh, a, a large defense establishment, as I said, with maritime and information technology. So I think we had a lot. I think our history means a great deal. Uh, the the background that we have of, of Washington, Jefferson, uh, and uh, people that uh, helped to found the republic, it provides us, I think, a good foundation for liberty and freedom in this country. And we're very proud of the state. I'm very proud to have been the governor of the state. Yes, sir. I remember those governor years, too, from 1998 to 2002, and it, it's been a while, but uh, Virginia's been back in the news lately for a, a pretty positive region, reason, and uh, you got Republican Glenn Youngkin is recently elected governor of Virginia over uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe, 
and uh, he's set to be sworn in in Richmond there on on the 15th of January. Uh, in your view, what issues did Glenn Youngkin win on? Well, first of all, we're very, very excited about the fact that Glenn Youngkin was elected. Uh, that's the first Republican that's been elected for a while statewide. He swept in the entire ticket, the lieutenant governor and the attorney general. Uh, I uh, know the attorney general. I was once the attorney general of Virginia. I think our new guy may be the best attorney general ever uh, when he comes in. So I'm excited about that. He, uh, we also brought in a sweep uh, by bringing in the new majority in the lower house of the uh, legislature, the House of Delegates. We now have a new Republican majority in the House, and that's very important. So, you know, what's the significance of it? Well, as, as everybody knows, the trend in the United States now for years, and in Virginia, too, has been to move left, very radically left. And now I think that what we have seen is that the far left is really in charge of this country. And as a result, they started to uh, overreach. They started to overreach and really annoy people, and I think that uh, the election of the Republican in Virginia it shows a stoppage of that far-left drift. I think it has a big impact on the uh, policy of the state of Virginia. But more than that, I think that it, 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 it tends to change the direction of the national politics as well. Uh, so what was going on, and I'll, I'll let you ask anything you want to follow up on, but what was going on here was that the, the far left decided that they wanted to begin to indoctrinate children into critical race theory and begin to uh, to teach kids that they were either victims or oppressors just because of their skin color. Uh, parents didn't like that. And as a result, that changed the voting pattern in the suburbs, in the suburbs where the mothers and fathers were sending their kids to school. They didn't like that one bit. And I think that made a big difference. And then finally, I think we saw the collapse of the Biden administration, which was a drag on the Democratic ticket. Uh, and I can go through all that. Everybody on my listening is, knows what's going on at the national level. But it has a big impact in a place like Virginia, right next to the national capital. Uh, we're very attuned to national politics, as they are in Arizona. And uh, we, uh, I think the collapse of Biden and his lousy policies and lousy approaches, I think, were made a, made a big difference. And I think that the Republican victory may have uh, a better effect on the, on the future of the country as well. Yes, sir. And you mentioned the education issue with regard to the woke culture and also the suburbs and the parents. But what about that other issue of crime? Well, just like in the rest of the country, we're seeing a lot of murders uh, in Richmond. Uh, we're seeing, of course, we, we see what's going on in one of the, the major uh, cities around the country. Uh, I think that the, the rioting uh, had a big impact on the thinking of people in Virginia, just as it has uh, across the rest of the country as well. And I think there's a sense of disorder. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the trials that we have seen uh, as a result of all the rioting that was going on by the far left in this country has made a big difference. Uh, I think that the uh, the misfortune that went on, that bad thing that happened at the Capitol on, Jan on January the sixth of uh, uh, during the near the inauguration, uh, has given the left uh, an argument, has given them uh, something to talk about to distract attention away from the other chaos that was going on. But law and order is a big issue here. I think uh, it's a big issue in the United States. Uh, and then there are other issues as well. Of course, inflation is just a terrible situation. Oh. Yeah. Uh, all over the country, it's a terrible thing. And, of course, I'm very attuned to the international relations and foreign policy issues. I think that the collapse of the United States, the embarrassing runaway in uh, Afghanistan, embarrassed the people of the United States. I think they know how dangerous that is, and I can talk about that more because I think that danger is just increasing in Europe right now, where, of course, I was ambassador.
Ambassador Gilmore, this is Charles Heller. I'm co-hosting with Eb here and Bob. And I'd like to key in on something you said when you mentioned that the parents were uh, standing up against the teaching of critical race theory to their children in the schools. Some people claim that the disparities in achievement, employment, and especially education are based in racism. And others believe that those gaps are more based in the performance standards and economic in education and in economic difference. What's been your experience in narrowing the gaps in education in education exp- uh, results? Well, I think the parents of Virginia don't really want education to be involved in politics, and uh, that was what the far left wants to do, and I think that's true uh, nationwide. Uh, you know, what what is the disparity here? Um, I, I, I think that we need to be teaching kids how to read and write and to understand their history and to, stand the, to understand the standards of the United States and the values. And uh, so uh, that, I think, is uh, just uh, the critically important thing. Now, look, in, in Virginia, the parents were have been, the suburbs have been voting Democrat over the last number of years. I, I think they just didn't really like the tone of the Republicans all that much. There needed to be a change in order to elect a Republican, a change. And I asked myself a rhetorical question a few weeks out from the election. Has there been a change? Has there something that shifted that's going to elect a Republican? And the answer was, yes, it did. The education issue shifted the voting patterns in the suburbs, and I think that we may see that nationwide too next year in the this year in the congressional elections. Hmm. To what degree? And you spoke to this a little bit when Bob asked you that. that and I'll ask you to be brief because I know Eb has a, a question he wants to ask you. But to what degree do you think that is a harbinger of the national of the national temperature? Well, we think that it is. You can see the the results of the the drop of uh, President Biden's popularity, uh, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Inflation is is a big one. Uh, this uh, enormous spending, which of course is going to create more inflation, uh, the collapse of our foreign policy, uh, the crime issue, and the border issue, which you all could teach us about. I think with yep. your experience in Arizona and oil, I think this. Is, and I think this is just uh, you know, creating a, a real real problem for the, the far left. Uh, I keep talking about that because I used to think the Democrats were the problem. I, I no longer think that. I think the Democratic Party is, is captured by the far left uh, and is now the instrument of the far left, just like uh, the media is on their uh, for their voice. And frankly, some of the business people are for their finance. Uh, I think that uh, that's been the, the problem in this country now. Ambassador, you you mentioned uh, the embarrassment over our withdrawal from Afghanistan and and looking at uh, turning a page here to your experience in foreign policy. uh, Could you tell our listeners uh, about the OSCE and why it's important to uh, U.S. foreign policy, sir? Well, sure. When I decided that uh, that I was interested in becoming a diplomat and talking to the Trump administration about becoming a diplomat, they said that they wanted me to serve in an international organization like the U.N., and the one that they had available was the OSCE. That's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It actually started uh, after the Helsinki Accords in 1976, and it's a 57-country organization. Everybody in Europe, most of Central Asia, the United States and Canada, all of Europe, including the Balkans, all the way up to the Baltics, the North Scandinavian countries, all of our allies, and the Eastern European countries are in it, too, the newly uh, freedom uh, people from Russia. But Russia's in it. Ukraine is in it. So it's a, uh, a very large organization. Uh, it's diplomacy. It's all diplomacy all the time. 
but I can report to you all the several things. First of all, the our allies that are so participatory in OSCE really like the United States. This uh, These rumors that the media has been putting out that somehow there was a, sh- a break between the U.S. and our allies is simply false. We worked every day with the French, the Germans, the British, Norwegians, uh, Swedes. We, we uh, worked every day because we understood the aggressiveness of the Russians uh, in order to try to keep the peace and keep stability uh, in Europe. Uh, every week we met at the Habsburg Palace in downtown Vienna, Austria, in order to all the ambassadors did, and then stated our various positions, which then were communicated to and from our capitals. And it's a, it's a great way of communicating on international security, particularly with an organization where I could talk directly to the Russian ambassador. Uh, Jim, I have, a, I have a question on that. Um, now, with with you in that position, were you still fluent in German at that time? Oh, yes. Uh, the I learned German in the Army. Uh, after I finished my uh, intelligence uh, training and work at Fort Huachuca, right near where you are, they sent me to Monterey, California, and taught me German. And they were very serious about it, by the way. And so then I went to Germany uh, there as a soldier back in the 70s and uh, served there as an intelligence work, but I kept the German up. And I've kept it up over the years. Uh, now, so what, what kind of an advantage Austria, did that give you well, there in Vienna, it, Austria? Well, it gives you a lot because people know that you're, that you're an American, that you speak the language, you can get around in the country, you, you're, you're imme- immediately likable because people know that you respect them enough to learn their language. Uh, and that's a big advantage. Now, I will report to you that the language, international language of diplomacy now is English. Now, at OSCE, we had trans, uh, simultaneous translation into four or five languages, uh, but English is the primary language now of diplomacy worldwide. You know, they also can't tell punchlines behind your back. <laughs> well, they can in Russian. Well, yeah. <laughs> never underestimate the power of a schnook. So looking forward... <laughs> oh, God. Looking forward now, Ambassador... Uh, as you departed OSCE, but you're here now. You're back in the United States. You're you're looking out and seeing 2022 looming. Uh, what do you consider the leading challenges facing the OSCE? Well, no. Uh, listen, there's a real serious problem here. Uh, you know, I've, I've got to really get serious here for a minute. As everybody in this listening audience knows, the Russians have now massed a very large army on the border with Ukraine and is threatening Ukraine. After I left Vienna, when, when President Biden was uh, elected, all the Republicans were uh, fired worldwide, and that included me and all the other major ambassadors of the, in the world. So when I came back, uh, I decided to do some writing on foreign policy and observing on foreign policy. I joined the uh, uh, advisory panel, the American Foreign Policy Council, and we went to Ukraine. And I spent a week there in Ukraine. I actually went out on the Sea of Azov and looked at the Russian ships. I went into the battlefield and looked at what's going on there uh, in eastern Ukraine. But now this is a very, very serious problem. Uh, The Russians, I think, have decided that they don't want Ukraine to be independent. If your listeners go onto the web, onto the web page and put in Biden, uh, no, excuse me, Putin, uh, Ukraine essay, you'll see Putin's very lengthy essay as to why he believes that Ukraine should not exist as an independent country. And now he's threatening that country. Now, he's putting out the word that it's because he thinks that he's threatened by NATO and threatened by Ukraine, which is complete baloney. There's no threat at all to Russia anywhere. Russia is the aggressor here. 
Uh, and uh, the truth is, they he simply believes in expansion of Russia the way Russia historically has done. But it's not in the United States' interest for that to occur. It is threatening to Eastern European countries who are now our friends. It is, it is threatening to Western European countries who are our allies. Uh, and also would send the message into the world that the United States is not prepared to stand up against tyranny, which, by the way, we already sent that message in Afghanistan. So now this is a very serious pivot and hinge on which European freedom and security and stability rests. How do we get the Putin message, the message about Putin's intentions out to the world? Well, I think we're doing it right now, aren't we? Uh, by uh, I'm doing some writing on it. I've submitted an essay to Fox. I'm hopeful that they'll uh, that they will uh, print that. Uh, then we need to get out there on social media. We need to get out there in real media like radio and talk about this danger. But look, this this thing is coming. This doesn't have anything to do with what we say here in the United States. This is a real threat that is going on right now. And our only hope is to make it so risky and so expensive that the Russians pull back and they, they're bluffing and just intimidating and trying to get something for nothing out of this. It's like they create a hostage situation, extract something from President Biden, and then withdraw the troops. That's an old Russian game, and that may be what they're doing. That's the best scenario. The worst scenario is that they'll do an invasion and it will be a bloody mess for a long time uh, and, frankly, has implications for the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. Ambassador, Angela Merkel is no longer the chancellor of Germany. We have a new government in Germany. We're looking at uh, Mr. Macron and what he's trying to achieve uh, inside France. Who's the new leader in Europe that's going to carry that message to Russia? And do the Eastern Europeans like Poland and also the Baltic states that have been part of the former Soviet Union are they also speaking out uh, through the OSCE, or are they going direct to Moscow? No, they are. They're speaking out at OSCE. Let, let me be clear. All these countries are on the American team. Uh, you asked a question, who is the best spokesman? The American is always the best spokesman. The American is always the big player in the room, simply because we're so big. Uh, we we're, we're, uh, have our values. We have our commitments. We have our military. We have everything. And uh, our countries look to us for leadership. As long as the United States is present and strong, which is what I was doing in Europe as ambassador, they're going to be fine. They're willing to stand up to the Russians, and that includes the Ukrainians. But if the U.S. looks weak and withdrawing and isolationist, then I think they'll start to make their deals with the monsters of the East. Uh, so there's that. Now, you asked me a question about Europe. The, the British are actually doing pretty well. Uh, they have been standing up. They entered into the submarine agreement in the Pacific. They have put troops into Ukraine. I think they, they're not as threatening as the United States would be to the Russians, but they are a tripwire, and they're showing decisive leadership. And they were, they are and were our best friends together with the Canadians. So, so uh, make no mistake. Why aren't the Europeans taking the lead uh, on Ukraine? Well, they're doing pretty well. Uh, the, the, the Germans are uh, a different breed, although they were very much our allies, and I was very close to the ambassador in, uh, from Germany. Don't worry too much about the change of their government at this point. Uh, that uh, Germany is still Germany, and they are uh, a very powerful force in Europe, as is France. And I know we don't, you know, we, we think of the French as, as being sort of uh, uncertain people, but they were very strong allies of mine when I was uh, in Europe, and uh, the French are very much on the, the Western team. Make the, Macron, notwithstanding, who has a tendency to say some kind of crazy things from time to time, uh, and he's a little too European and a little less Western, but uh, still, the French are still the French, and we're okay with all these, uh, all these people. 
Uh, I think what you have to watch is uh, is American policy here. There was this Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that is running from Russia to Germany, and it's going to deliver energy into Western Europe. President Trump put uh, sanctions on that pipeline because it's going to make Europe more dependent on Russia. Is that President the pipeline Biden, that runs through Ukraine? Uh, no, it's, it runs through the Baltic Sea, as a matter oh, okay. of fact. It, it avoids Ukraine. Okay. I thought they uh, had a pipeline going through Ukraine. There is a pipeline going through Ukraine, and now Nord Stream 2 will allow them to divert away from that pipeline, which weakens Ukraine, weakens Western Europe. It's really a, a bad situation, but the, the Germans have allowed it to be built, and President Biden has allowed it to be built. That's a real problem, uh, and it's going to be. Um, but I think that if you really look at um, American policy overall, uh, I think that you'll find that there have been really serious uh, problems with what we've been communicating. Uh, the uh, New START program, President Trump was uh, negotiating that, and he was insisting that the Russians include their tactical nuclear weapons in that uh, discussion in Europe. Uh, when President Biden came in, he just threw that overboard and just agreed to a New START continuance, which is what the Russians wanted him to do. Uh, so you've got that and Nord Stream 2, and then finally the, Af- the Afghanistan uh, catastrophe. Uh, so you take all that, and we've been sending very weak signals into the system, and that's when President Putin built up his army in Ukraine, which is extremely dangerous. Uh, because the, the Ukrainians will fight. We, we may very well see a, a real hinge of the future in the, in the weeks ahead in, in the Ukraine crisis. My understanding is that Russia is, uh, w- one of the things that Russia is using to do this is saying that there are a number of Russians in the Ukraine and that he's issued Russian passports to them to basically give him standing to come on in and essentially, air quotes, rescue them. Your comment? They have, yeah, yes, they have, in effect, uh, occupied eastern Ukraine. Now, they're doing it right now through proxy forces. They don't actually, I don't think they have necessarily their armies there, but their armies are massed there if there was an effort to recapture eastern Ukraine by the Kiev government, then they could immediately move troops right on in. And they and they took over the Crimea. Now, the United States and none of the European countries have recognized any of this behavior. We uh, still stand by Ukraine as in, in its, ter- its territorial boundaries. OSCE stands for the Helsinki Accords, and those accords stand for territorial integrity of countries, not changing those borders by force and uh, and preventing this kind of aggression. Uh, if Russia uh, invades Ukraine at this point, uh, uh, once again, I think they're really destroying the Helsinki Accords and setting themselves up as an aggressor nation. Well, it's really stupid for a lot of reasons. One thing, they might lose. But second of all, they're going to absolutely persuade everybody in Europe that they're the bad guys, and we really need that. So there's uh, there's no good news here in this, uh, but uh, I think that, that this, in the long run, this is a loser for Russia. Is Ukraine... Putin's Sudetenland? Yes. Uh, Ukraine is uh, Putin's Sudetenland. This is a place where uh, where they're trying to recapture an uh, area that once was part of the old Soviet Union. Uh, the uh, They really are trying to almost reassemble the old Tsarist Russian uh, Empire. Uh, but I think that it's vital, and I've, I've written, as a matter of fact, that, that we don't want a new Yalta. Now, you remember at the end of World War II, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin met in Yalta, and it created a sphere of interest for the Russians in Eastern Europe. The result was a catastrophe in the beginning of the Cold War. 
Uh, well, Putin would like to do that again, I think. And uh, I just hope that President Biden doesn't give in to that. But we really don't know a lot about President Biden and his uh, his approach at this point. He is looking like, talking like he's willing to stand up at this critical crisis. But, but can he stay awake that long? Well, there's that. So I, I think that uh, it's a real problem. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a real problem. That's all I'm going to say right now. We're down to the last minute. Eb? Well, yeah. So, uh, Jim, in the, in the 45 seconds we have left, what do you want our listeners to know that we haven't talked about? Well, we're all watching uh, Senator Sycamore. Uh, and we'd like to know more from you all about that. We'd like to know more experience from our Arizonans about the border crisis, as a matter of fact. So I can learn a lot from you all as opposed to just, to just talking. But I think I have several things that I want to say in the closing seconds. Watch out for this Ukraine problem. We are all talking about COVID. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about domestic issues. We're not paying any attention to what is a real, genuine world crisis, not to mention the Taiwan crisis over in the Pacific. So international relations, I'm afraid, may come back to the fore here pretty soon and not in a very pleasant way. American strength can divert all that and create peace and security in the world, and that is our mission and our duty. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. I have a whole list of questions we never got to. Uh, That's all we have time for today. For Inside Track, this is Ev Wilkinson. Bob Wells. Charles Heller. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 